welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Yes, yeah, an absolute pleasure to have you and welcome Sue Shapcott, my new co-host for this episode. How are you, Sue? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am absolutely amazing. This is a conversation I'm really looking forward to, especially with the pre-chat that we did and the questions that we've had to think about and the topics that we're going to dig into today. Very interesting angle that we're going to look at today. And I am quite selfishly curious about some of these things um, because I think they're going to better inform me for some of my work too. So jumping straight into the question that we always like to ask our guests, Carrie, what would you like to change about the golf industry, but you can't? <laughs> well, you know, one thing I would like to uh, change about the, the golf industry is the degree of inclusion for women. I would, I would like to see more women included at all levels in the golf industry, you know, as players in the pro shop, in leadership positions, in governance positions. And, you know, I might not be able to change it myself, but I think that as a group, as a industry, I think it can be changed. It will take a sustained effort over time, but I think it can be changed. I can't change it alone, but I, I think it can be changed. How would you say it is now compared to 10 years ago? You think it is changing? I think we've seen a trickle of change, but really what we need is a groundswell. We need in a, a mass people making an effort. We need allies and advocates for women's golf. And, and we need people that will stand up and help to make the change happen. You know, the culture is incredibly stable as a um, male dominant culture that doesn't change. And uh, in order for it to change it, it will take a sustained effort over time. Mm. Well, this is certainly a topic that's come up on a number of occasions, Sue. This is something we've talked about a lot. You've written about it, and we've got a few other people that have written about it too. There's a number of things that are happening in the industry that are focused on women's participation and bringing more diverse people into the industry. I would agree, though, Carrie, that a groundswell is required. Interestingly, though, on some of your areas of expertise that we're going to talk about today, actually the only way you're going to have more women in leadership positions or one of the main ways is to have more women playing the game and loving the game. So if we go down, right down to the grassroots level and actually the experience that people first have when they come onto the golf course or when they come to the golf club, some of your areas of expertise really are having a significant impact on this. And this is the part that I'd love to dig into in, in the first part of this conversation. So we have a section called Elephant in the Room, as you know. And this question is a, a little selfishly for me based around some areas that I'm curious about for my work. And that's you know, advising countries, advising PGA organizations on golf development. And it's probably a topic that quite frankly, I don't think I've educated myself well enough on to speak with any authority. And it's an easy throwaway for many people in the industry to say, let's build more short golf, course, golf courses and that's gonna bring more people into the game. So Carrie, are short golf courses actually the answer to golf's participation needs? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I honestly don't think that that is the answer. I, I think inclusion of women is the key. And I, I think, you know, having more women playing, yes, that's part of the key, but women in order to get more women playing, we need to see more women role models. And so we need to see more women at all levels in the industry. We need to see women when we walk into the pro shop, you know, so that we feel comfortable there. We, we need to see a, a staff that reflects who we are. And we, we need to see items in the pro shop that reflect the female game. And the only way to do that is to have women in the pro shop. So women, pros, women teaching pros, women in governance, you know, like I said earlier, it just, we need to have more women role models to get more women playing the game. I don't think it's just a matter of, of having short courses. And I think it's a, a misconception that short courses are for women. So, you know, not all short courses, you know, not all women hit the ball short. For example, many and 
probably most of my friends that I play golf with will hit the ball about the same distance as an average male golfer that is, you know, middle-aged out there. You know, it's, it's, of course, we don't hit it as far as, as the young guys, but, you know, many, many of the golfers that I play golf with hit the ball quite, quite a ways. So I think short courses is, is kind of a, a misdirected idea of how to get more women playing the game. I'm nodding my head like crazy here, Carrie, not that you can um, see me on a, on a podcast. And, you know, I, I agree with, you know, what, what you said there. And, you know, I, I think that getting more women in at an entry level is, is great. And, you know, I think that the industry is doing better at that. But as you said, then we get women in at, a, at that entry level, but we're not so good at caring about their representation as you go higher up the hierarchy. And so, you know, getting more women in leadership is, is just as important, I think, and not, necessary, not necessarily dependent on that grassroots participation. You know, there's enough women in the industry who are capable of being in leadership positions who, you know, we're not quite there yet where that they're, they're given the opportunities many of the times, but I, I, I agree with everything that you said. And with the short courses too, then, you know, by, by definition then saying that, you know, short courses are better for women is itself a, a stereotype. And I think that, you know, a lot of the strategies that golfers offered to address the imbalance of men and women play and has been based around stereotypes. And, you know, I agree with you, this is kind of another one. I would say though, that um, I'm not gonna play golf with you if you're used to people driving as far as over 200 yards these days, I don't think I'm capable of doing that. So you might have to find another uh, golf partner <laughs> in Minneapolis. So we might have to shelve that one. Well, what, one thing about, you know, the short courses, I think too, is that, that there may be even a further marginalization of women. It's, it's could be a, a way of putting them even, even further apart from the game. So, especially if they're designated for women. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, and this is interesting from a, a perception point of view, because I should have mentioned, I didn't mention this to either of you beforehand, but I grew up playing at a golf club outside Glasgow in Scotland and we had a par three golf course a six hole par three golf course in the middle of an 18 hole golf course and it's a pretty good 18 hole course it's uh you know I wouldn't, wouldn't say it's like a championship course but it's a good quality members club but that six hole course when I joined was that was the place as a young child that you would learn to play and you grew like an affinity with that course because of it and it was really really simple but those you know there was ways to make it more cool and, and you know fun by being creative about new teeing areas between going into a big block of trees and hitting from a different teeing area and all these kind of things and that was there was, there was some junior girls and there was some junior boys and as I grew older as a member of that club there was a period of probably 10 years and literally nobody played on this course and I loved it because I was getting very competitive and I wanted to go and practice my short game so I went over to this place all the time and I was just pitching around all these greens and they, they weren't even as good quality as the greens on the main course, but I just found this an amazing asset that nobody was really using. Thankfully, a number of years later, someone came in as a sort of junior program manager and they started to then utilize that. The club then actually started to market uh, family and junior memberships to play on the short course. Now, that's not in itself a, a unique situation or an unusual story, but are we, when we're having this sort of topic conversation about short courses, is it smart to just sort of distinguish those two types of short courses? So it's uh, an asset that exists within an existing 18, within an existing golf club. It's, you know, there's an 18 course plus or something like that. And it's how do clubs better utilize that for the benefit of anyone that wants to use it, whether they're a top player wanting to practice a short game or, a, you know, a family with two young kids that want to start on a shorter course and separate that out from the conversation that we're maybe touching on earlier, which is, you know, nine hole golf courses or six hole golf courses that are built, purpose built to introduce new people to the game and are maybe perceived to be for shorter hitters stroke 
potentially women, which in itself is the wrong perception. Am I making sense? Yes, of course. So if we separate those two things out, what's your, your thoughts on the types of courses for participation needs for the game, for growing the game going forward? Uh, you want me to take that one? Is that a big, is that a big meaty one? No, no, no. I I just didn't know if you want me to answer it or Sue, but. um, Oh, this happens every time, Carrie. You should check this. I I throw questions out there. Sorry, I throw statements out there and the guests have to to ask, is that really a question or not? I just didn't know if it was a question for me or if if you wanted Sue to answer it. But, you know, I think there is a, a misconception about you know, short courses, and that is that that they're easy or that they are for for women. And, um, you know, it, it depends upon who that course is built for, or what the intention is. Um, I think I might have talked with you a little bit about Bandon Dunes, uh, the preserve or Pinehurst, the cradle, I'm not sure who I who I had that conversation with. But, you know, these courses are very difficult courses actually they they're they might be a shorter number of holes or you know par threes but but they're difficult little courses and I think the intention of them uh, when they built them was for you know cohorts of men generally that are traveling to a resort and they want to have a betting game or something like that, you know, either upon arrival day or departure day where, where they don't have time to play 18 holes and they'll go out and they'll, they'll literally go out in a very large group and, you know, hit shots that, you know, everybody's going for the birdie and, um, you know, they'll make bets on, mm-hmm. you know, who, who's, who's going to win that hole. You know, so those courses are, are really quite difficult. Mm-hmm. They're not easy little courses to, to learn, learn golf on. So I just, I think the whole discussion around short courses needs to be expanded like we're doing here today and, and really talk about, is that the way to get more women playing the game? And I, I just don't think that's the answer personally so, I, I think the answer is, is to retrofit 18 hole golf courses mm-hmm. myself so okay yeah i mean it, it sounds like um one of the, the obvious misconceptions then is that you know a short golf course there's only one type of short golf course which obviously there isn't from this conversation so let, let's skip on to the next part then which we're going to ask your advice on and i think we can probably sh- shape this on the basis of either building a new short golf course of some format or retrofitting an existing 18 hole golf course to be more sustainable and inclusive. What would be in your mind, the top three or three to five questions that the industry needs to ask itself when considering shorter courses? Well, I think number one, where should they be built? You know, should they be built as part of you know if, if you're trying to bring beginners into the game for example should they be built as part of a larger scale golf course or do we <clears throat> do we build them where there is no access to golf courses do we build them like where i grew up was a, a small town of 600 people out in rural minnesota and we had a little golf course and there was nothing else for teenagers to do there was nothing else for young kids to do I I started when I was eight years old so I would get on my bike and ride out ride bike out to the golf course with my golf bag on my back and play golf and play from the time I could get out there to when the sun went down you know do we bring these short courses to places where there is no current access to golf and or do we build them as part of of larger golf entities or facilities and i I guess my answer might be why don't we bring them to places where there is no access so carrie are nine hole or shorter golf courses are they you know for us for small communities are they 
affordable? Are they, um, you know, relatively easy to maintain? Because if they're in a rural community, then if there's not much play, are they, are they, are they a cost-effective way of bringing golf to communities? Well, I, I think they could be because I think that, you know, when there is nothing, anything is, is kind of desirable. You know, even, you know, the, the course that I grew up on, and I don't know if, if the standard is st the same today or not, uh, I would think that, that maybe people still would be interested in playing golf no matter what form it takes. But the course I grew up on had sand greens and uh you know was basically built in a field and i was just happy to be able to to have something to do now the standard may have changed today but i think you know one question is is where should they be built and another question is, is how can we still design them to be you know exciting and playable no matter what the quality of the turf might be and you know, so that they're a draw for people and attraction. And another question is, is, you know, why do we still have municipal golf courses that get public money that, that aren't accessible to 50% of the population? So, you know, there's a lot of questions I think that the golf industry has to ask itself when considering, you know, building short golf courses. With the municipal golf course comment, do you mean that the golf courses are just too long for most women to play? Is that what you mean? Or? Well, I do, I do mean that, but I mean that, that there are no choices for, for, you know, for forward tee. So I think we can embed a course mm -hmm. that is appropriate distance for women. And again, going back to my earlier comment, you know, not all women hit the ball the same distance. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can build some forward tees for women and then other women can share tees with senior men or even go back, you know, to the uh, average men's, you know, member tees mm -hmm. or, you know, I, I think there's very few women playing off of the back tees on any golf course, but maybe, maybe some of the college gals do that. I'm not sure. Harry, how, how many, just sort of what number comes to mind in terms of a, a percentage of golf clubs that you've spoken to over your whole career working in the industry that have really had a sort of a desire and put any thought into different new teeing areas on their course? I mean, is it just a completely rare thing that they would consider this? Does it really take you to sort of demonstrate to them the benefits and the examples? Or do, do any of them actually... Do many of them come to you and say, we recognize this as an opportunity. How can you help us? Well, most, most courses have at least one forward tee. But I think the public courses need more than one. And the private courses, that forward tee that they have, is it, it, it's usually a, a, for a course that plays much too long. So if we start talking numbers... The private courses, a lot of times their forward tee is, you know, maybe 55, 5,400 yards. That's too long. The public courses, their forward tee might be 5,100, 5,200, still too long for some golfers. But there's only one tee to, for them to move forward onto. And, and if we're talking about, you know, not all women hit the ball at the same distance. We need more than, than a one forward tee for a choice. So we might need a tee at like 4,800, uh, maybe 5,100, and then dropping back to 5,400, et cetera. You know, I mean, the, the men have three or four different tees to choose from. And there could be some overlap in the women's tees with the men's tees, but maybe the women should have three or four different tees to choose from as well. Certainly in the last, I, I want to say, five to ten years, then there's been a lot of emphasis on forward tees, trying to ungender tees and just make them, you know, your, your choice of tees 
based on your club head speed or your or your hidden distance, which seems to make sense to me in theory. In practice, it doesn't seem to play out like that simply because, as you say, then there isn't the investment in the options of forward tees. So you end up kind of having the right theory, but not the tees, tee positionings to support that. Can you think of examples where courses have been very strategic and thoughtful and have created tee-in systems that you, you think have got it right? Well, I th- <laughs> interestingly, I, I think that, that resort courses sometimes get it right almost because they have to, because, you know, if their revenues are driven by repeat customers, for example, coming back to resort courses and they want to satisfy all of their clientele. So I've seen some resort courses that, that actually have a really great team system installed and, you know, the, the grounds are usually maintained firm and fast. So you get a little more distance out of your, your drives and, you know, resort courses can often make the course fun and playable because they want the repeat customer. I've, I've played at resorts that, that I enjoy and, and feel like that, that the, the team systems are, are correct. Um, there's a guy that has done some interesting work. I haven't played any of his courses yet, but um, Bill Bergen is an architect with the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And Oh, I take that back. I have played one of, one of his courses. I went I went to uh, the Carolinas and did play one of his courses. But I'd I'd like to play some of his more recent work and and see what he's done because he's got a system that tends to um, say, okay, well, if you hit the ball this distance, a certain distance, this is the tee that you should play. And I think he's got them color coded so that you can you can pick the right tee for you, you to, yourself to play. So, I mean, is that in simple terms that if you hit your driver X yards and you hit your seven iron X yards, this is the course for you. And I mean, I don't I think I've ever seen that exact sort of way of doing it, but I mean, that actually seems to make common sense to me now as someone who has worked in the game and played the game for many years but is now missing playing the game and hasn't, I barely play golf now and I'm not close to a golf course at the moment. I'm not allowed to go to the nearby course, which is three hours away because it's over state lines, as you would say, say in America. And I'm like absolutely desperate to play golf. And I'm looking at it saying, if I went to a place and they said, so you, how far do you hit your driver? And I give them the honest answer, then they could just tell me, oh, well, there you go. That's the course that you play. And I could know that without having played for months, in my case, almost a year, I then get a course that's perfect for the situation I'm in. Is that what you're meaning? Just something as simple as that? Yes, I, I think he bases it off of uh, how, how far you hit your driver. And then he color codes it so that you know when you walk up to the tee, you've, you hit off of that color of tee. And it yeah. is based on how, how far you hit your drive. When I was doing a, a bit of research for a, a different project, there's courses, it seems, where before you go and play, you're, you're sent off to the driving range. And they have markers out on the driving range where you can kind of identify where your drives are finishing. And based on that, so you're told to go and do that exercise and then come back and then you'll be able to match your, your driving range performance up with the tees and, and off you go, which again, sounds very sensible. And you wonder whether whether people would a be realistic about how far they hit their drive b even if they go off to the driving range to um kind of benchmark their driving how much delusion is involved in that but i think it's at least a start of trying to connect t's with driving distance instead of gender which is i think what we're what we're trying to do is as you say carrie then you know women aren't a homogenous group who or hit the the ball x number of yards just in the same way that men aren't a homogenous group either so you know the 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 swing speed or the driving distance is the factor that matters more than gender right right yeah and i mean i think um you know my personal experience of this was i said this earlier you know growing up 
every course round about me was very forward blue tees somewhere down cutting the rough for juniors reds every club was like red tees for women yellow tee for men white tees for the men's medals and that was that but probably about 14 year old started going to portugal with my parents and they both play golf and we would go out there and you you know we, i was so excited i did all my research on all these courses i wanted to play and all these amazing places and we managed to get on a few of them uh, a lot of time playing twilight hours just because of the uh, the prices on some of them and i was 14 and my parents were like okay okay calm down but we'd get a game in all these places and we'd pitch up and they would have gold silver or not 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 even gold silver bronze just you know different colors that didn't really relate to the system that we had back home and playing with my mum and dad we were all different ability and we hit them all different lengths and we just chose the course that we thought was the most appropriate so it kind of just that was my first realization that it's it's not exactly half it doesn't have to be that way everywhere but the interesting point that you made just a few moments ago carrie was you know you're saying that just like that example i've given that resort you've seen resort courses that do this really well but you said that's basically just been driven by a business need and there's that disconnect again that we talk about we have so many conversations in the industry that member clubs so often are criticized because when they're struggling, it's because they're not thinking about themselves as a business and whatever structures or governance structure they've got in place or decision-making, it doesn't allow them to shift properly into thinking about themselves in a business. But if they did, they would be doing many things differently. One of which might be teeing areas. Yes. I, I, I think you're very, very spot on with that assessment of the situation. And if a listener of the podcast, Carrie, was from a golfing nation somewhere else in the world, so I don't know, perhaps in Eastern Europe or in Africa, let's just imagine that a country where the game is still relatively young, what advice or considerations might you give to them if they said, you know, we want to develop a national facility strategy and this is based around getting more people into the game, but we need more new facilities to do that? What advice would you give them? Well, I, I probably would go back to what I mentioned earlier about if, if they were going to build short courses, you know, focus on kind of peppering the countryside with with these uh, short courses, you know, or training facilities, you know, in small towns where there's a lack of recreation for teens, you know, a lack of accessibility to golf, make it accessible, but you don't have to centralize it and in one location because I think that the cost of building a very rudimentary facility is not, you know, it's not astronomical. You don't need a lot to hit a golf ball. You need land. That's, that's what you need, but it doesn't need to be perfect. You know, rental clubs uh, or loaners for teens and, and young people, and then role models, you know, other people that, that are willing to help these kids learn how to play and kid i mean kids are the key women are the key women bring the kids so you know if you were looking at building golf building the growing the game of golf i, I think you need to kind of spread it out a little bit and then as people grow in their love of the game they'll they'll search out and they'll look for higher end facilities facilities that give them them more and then my personal um, belief as far as building courses that are accessible to everybody is to have a course within a course. So where, you know, you have all of the different tees laid out at different distances so that uh, any level of player can, can play that golf course. And I think that's a more inclusive way of doing it than setting aside a separate golf course for certain class of players because separate to me separate is never really equal and the level of maintenance that and attention that would be given to the the main course often is very different than the level of maintenance and attention that is given to a short course for example the the conditioning is different Carrie, just a, a follow-up question if we think about nations where golf is less developed does their golf course design do they come to it with fresh eyes and do they apply more 
logic and less tradition to their golf course layout? Or are you seeing the same mistakes being made that we, you know, make in the US and the UK in developing uh, golf nations? Well, I, I think they, they might have, I, I don't know because I haven't been there, but I think they might have a very different vision of, of what golf might be. I mean, you know, I've seen a, a few examples of, uh, you know, kids will make a game out of anything. And if you just get them the clubs and get them a space to hit and the, and the golf balls, and get them a space to hit, they're going to start hitting. And from there, you know, you can have some of these training facilities spread out. And then, like I said before, they can come together at a, at a more refined facility to actually start playing the game. But, but just getting the clubs in their hands and getting role models, people that can help them learn the game. I think that's that's kind of the way most games start, isn't it? People yeah, I mean, just start playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I would completely buy into that. I think the key here is people because in a lot of the work that I do, aside from gather work, it's the success of golf development is a very generic term, I know, but the success of the game developing in a place, whether it's a region or a country, it really always comes back to the people, so that, that it's always it always happens because there's a motivated person with the right unselfish intentions to grow the game and get more people into it because they've got the bug, they've got they can see the benefits, um, and they would just love more people to get those benefits as well. Um, the one of the questions that I always have is, you know, in those cases, if you take Jordan as an example, having a conversation with the people in the golf federation there recently, and they have. You know, a huge population. They have a number of sports that are quite popular in the country. There's actually a number of reasons why there's quite a big potential for golf because of the culture of sport and the way that people view sport over there. But they've got one resort course, which looks beautiful, which was known for the, the mixed open that was held there. But that's four hours away, I think, in driving distance from the capital. And the capital just has a nine hole sand based course. But that's where the massive population is. Mm -hmm. So the kids that go get introduced to the game by a couple of really passionate people up in the capital, their experience is going to this nine-hole sand-based course. And that's been enough to keep them enthused and get them into the game. The, they then, though, a couple of times a year, go down to that other resort course and play there. So I, I mm -hmm. guess that for them must be like going potentially going to Augusta. You know, it must just be like going to this amazing place compared with what they play on. But there's still enough where they are in the capital to get them into the game. And it's, I would, my guess would be having spoken to them that that's because of the passion of those two people that are introducing them to the game. So I, again, that's probably more a amusing or a rambling for me rather than a question, Carrie. But I think, you know, it's, it's a combination of people and then the kind of thinking that you've got in what you do and the way that you advise clubs to think about what they develop that are actually the the two ingredients yeah i i mean i i think you know this conversation has been pretty interesting in that you know if you look at how golf started just originally it started as a very rudimentary game you know on you know the lynx land you know the ships would come in with you know the the merchants and they would lay over in a seaside town in Scotland and, you know, they'd come off the ships and the, and the townsfolk and, the, and people would go out and they would just form a game along the links land, along the, the beaches. And, you know, they'd say, oh, well, let's, let's hit towards that tree over there. And they would, you know, then all of a sudden it became, you know, let's hit our ball into this hole and then let's tee it up and let's go toward that mound over there, you know, so it started as a very rudimentary game. And I don't, you know, I think that, that if you get the golf clubs and get the golf balls to, to people, they'll just start using them. And who knows, you might even come up with a completely different game out of 
out of that type of situation. But I mean, we in the United States have such a surplus of used golf clubs. I mean, you know, th this is something that maybe maybe other countries might that are developing developing the game they might be interested in. I'm not sure. I just don't see how financially how how you can could build enough golf courses to start the game game in these other countries that are you know financially like you said before i mean if if they were built to the same level that we have here in the united states and they were maintained to that level i just don't know that you could build enough of them to satisfy the the, the population yeah i mean i think that the business models don't really stack up based on that exact example i think for me the big question is if a, if a national federation says, oh, you know, we want to build more golf facilities because they've got the right intentions, they've got, they actually understand the process of how they can bring people in and create a better coaching workforce that's not just professionals, but activators, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they say the missing piece of the puzzle is more facilities. That then comes back to a, a, re, a sort of reality check on what's actually required as a facility in inverted commas. And describing what you described, and, you know, that's going to come onto this in a minute is your background, you know, it, Early in my career, I worked with a number of the clubs out in the west of Scotland and right out into tiny little towns and villages and islands. And in many of these places, the only sports facility that every single town had was a golf course. Now, that was mm -hmm. probably partly because it was in Scotland, but, you know, they didn't have a swimming pool in every town. They didn't have a football pitch in every town, but they might have had a nine-hole golf course. And even in those places, they didn't have a practice ground. And they would say, well, how can we get more kids playing the game? We don't have a practice area to do lessons. I say, well, you, there's a field there put some flags in it and create a little route and just let them use their imagination. They don't know any different if they're just starting the game for the first time. And actually the same can be said for adults, regardless of, you know, who it is that's coming into the game for the first time. Um, and actually sort of side note is one of those courses is one of those courses that was, um, you might remember those calendars you used to see years ago that people would sell for Christmas. And every hole was like this sort of cartoon golf hole that was the green was perched on a cliff somewhere. And there was, you know, yeah, yeah. ridiculous like dragons flying through the sky and all these ravines and everything like that. And they weren't real, but they kind of looked sort of real. That is not far off the golf course that a certain Robert McIntyre played on, which was one of these courses that I advised at one point, you know, and actually was talking to a few people at the weekend there. And I was saying, it's no surprise that a player that, like that has done so well on a hilly golf course at Augusta. He spent his whole life growing up on massive sloping lies. And now he's on tour. So, I mean, he's going to have an advantage on massively sloping golf courses. But again, you know, he, he, he grew up. I know what the practice ground was like there. His imagination that must have been required was, you know, akin to what everyone talks about with Seve's imagination, learning hitting balls on, on the beach and things like that. So... Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I love that example. I, I saw that documentary on Seve and him hitting a, a, a three iron, I think it was, or two iron, three iron. That's the only club he had. So he had to learn how to hit any kind of shot and hit it from anywhere and hit it on the beach. And I, I love that example, Colin. That's, that's exactly, you know, if, if you don't know anything else and all you have is, is what you have, you, you make a game out of it. And who well, knows where that takes you, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that actually segues perfectly onto the next question because it's about your background. And when we had a, our first phone call, you told me, uh, I might get this wrong, but you said your, your golf course in the tiny town that you mentioned earlier was essentially an old cow patty, I think you said. You know, essentially <laughs> nothing. And I said, well, have you ever sat and reflected back on the fact that you are now designing and modifying golf courses you know and like the the extent to which your career has progressed you started with something like that and that was enough that's all it was to get you hooked and I'm sure that wasn't a manicured golf course in any by any stretch of the imagination and when we spoke on a phone call last week you were in a very beautiful place um, in California I think and you'd just been at the ANA inspiration and helping them look at the course and you know I know you've got some other exciting projects coming up on you know, world-class championship golf courses in the coming months. It, like, that's a fascinating journey for you. I mean, has that that upbringing and the introduction to golf in a place like that, do you think that's shaped the way that you approach your work now? <laughs> well, absolutely. 
my introduction to golf shaped shaped the way I approach my my work. I just have a couple of clarifications. I was uh, doing a course preview for the uh, KPMG Women's PGA Golf Clinics. Uh, they have a, a e news that goes out, and I was doing a course preview for them. And the the ANA itself uh, was not allowing any uh, spectators at all. So I uh, went home before the tournament started and was able to watch the tournament on TV, which was is another part of what has formed my kind of golf. You know, the, the way I think about golf is, is I'm a huge fan of professional golf. So I watch it on TV all the time. I watch the Masters. I watched uh, the ANA. I watched the Augusta National Women's Amateur, which was also exciting. So um, I watch golf. The second clarification I want to make is, is I did learn in a, a field, it was a pat, it, did have cows, cow pastures, cow patties here in the United States is something entirely different. I was, you know, when I was saying the word caddy, I was like, this is the wrong word. Don't say it. Don't say it. And I just said it anyway. So we'll decide afterwards whether I, I choose to edit that out or embarrass uh, <laughs> but but it was a, a cow field i mean i, I did find a, a patty or two occasionally um <laughs> a field of um, sounds cool right and it, it was very you know rudimentarily rudimentarily uh maintained you know with just a a gang mower behind a, a tractor and the greens were made out of sand and so in order to put the ball we would roll out the sand and dig the sand out of the cup and smooth it out. And then you'd go putt your ball. And uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it was tremendous fun for me as an eight, nine, 10 year old kid because I didn't have anything else and I didn't know anything else. You know, I think the knowing is kind of one thing that, that holds us back from, you know, putting clubs in kids' hands. You know, kid, kids can, probably uh tolerate a lot more than than the adults you know once you know once you know what golf uh looks like then then that kind of changes it well you know one quick follow-up for me on that one because sue and i were talking about this earlier i think i've come personally full circle and i'm guessing there may be some other people in the industry that are like that too because once i got into young and i described that example of you know going to portugal so many fantastic golf courses down there and you know so well manicured most importantly sunny and from a guy from glasgow that was just a huge benefit you could play in shorts all the time but that was me learning like what golf courses you could access you know these these absolute like paradise really and these are what you see on tv that the players are playing in but even although i've you know stayed in the industry and continue to sort of play golf up until now and i'm 40 years old because i don't play frequently now actually my benefits that I want to take from the game are different to what it was back then. So now I'm just genuinely looking to be able to play again, but I'm looking to be able to play golf and spend three or four hours with someone that I really like or play with my parents and be outside in the fresh air again. And those things don't require the manicured paradises that I once always looked up to and dreamt about. And actually I've come full circle to going, if if I could have a small town nine hole golf course right now, my standards aren't what they used to be. So, you know, I, I kind of agree with what you described there because I went through it, but I think people can also come back to that very rudimentary requirements as well at some point later in their life. I agree. I, I went camping once and we didn't, you know, we t- talked about playing golf and um, no, we didn't have a golf course. We didn't have really golf clubs we had one golf club and I think that's what started the conversation about playing golf. And we had what's called a chucker ball that you throw for, for dogs out of a a flinger thing. And, and we decided to go, we found a spot, a field uh, next to the campground. And we went and we started playing uh, what we called chucker golf. We just named it chucker golf and, and we all just started hitting the ball and it was great fun. It wasn't golf golf, but it was a different form of the game. Carrie, one reason I was so excited about talking to you and hearing your your views about uh, golf course design, because it seems to me that you are not on the bandwagon of 
you know, shorter courses are better. Shorter courses are the panacea for uh, solving golf's participation problem. So I really, you know, enjoyed listening to your, you know, your your independent thinking and and ideas of addressing the problem a different way. And although earlier you said, you know, you can't alone um, change golf for women, it seems like that's not quite true because you have a very concrete um, solution for making golf courses more accessible and more inclusive. So, you know, your work really can transform the golf culture. And so I'm curious about the feedback or the comments that you get when you talk to clubs or facilities about integrating some of your ideas about golf course design and and tee positionings. How do those ideas, how are they received? The clubs that that contact me usually are already thinking about doing that. They're already thinking about putting, you know, forward tees in, uh, making the courses more playable and and, uh, female friendly. And so, you know, they're they're received quite well, I think. I think it's a harder road to hoe, though, when you try to uh, approach clubs and just uh, explain to them what you do and and what you think maybe they should do. I think I think there has to be some kind of grassroots ideas within the club that that, that they need to change and I'm not sure how to get to them and explain to them that that this is a good idea. I think, I think in a lot of cases, you know, we know people need the motivation to, to change. And we talk about this quite a lot, certainly through gathering the conversations. We're lucky to have, you know, people, there has to be a reason. Otherwise, why are they going to break away from or, or consider breaking away from any status quo? But in many cases, it's, you know, if the bottom line is going to be affected. So if a club needs to improve its bottom line um, or, you know, there's, pressure on it to become more inclusive and actually think about the experiences that it offers to its customers regardless of which category those customers fall into then you gotta think that that might this might be one of the things that they think about i guess until i had this conversation with you and we'd actually i've been researching some of your pieces that you've written before we had this conversation i don't think that there's enough conversations about what you do this kind of this kind of thinking these considerations I don't really hear many people talking about them when it seems like this might be a missing piece to the piece of the puzzle for a lot of golf facilities and golf clubs to think about. Perhaps there's a missing link here, which is what is the um, what can provide or prompt that motivation. So, are there case studies? Are there you know real impact studies that say there's really obvious benefits here? We're doing it, and here's the outcomes that we've had as a result of it is there enough of these kind of case studies? Is there enough good stories? We all talk about storytelling at the moment. Are people telling the stories of why they've gone down the route and started to implement some of the ideas that you're talking about? You know, I'd almost throw that one to Sue because she's done a lot of research. (laughs) I mean, I think she's, she's the researcher here in the group and, and, you know, I looked for research to, to write some of those articles that I wrote starting back in, 2009, 2010, I started looking for research and I literally could barely find anything. And I was using research, you know, to database tools. I was looking for articles and I could hardly find anything. And, and I, I don't know, Sue, what have you found out there? And Yeah, there's starting to be some, um, some interest in research that a lot of it just backs up what what you have said about you know lack of tea choice for for women so that means that everyone's just kind of put into this one bucket when you know women hit the ball at at, a different distance in terms of research that shows increased participation or more satisfaction then there's some qualitative studies that show that where um, you know people go and play off of the most forward tee on their on their course and you know realize that it's actually really fun to be able to putt for birdie or sometimes eagle occasionally so you know why why are we playing off of these tees that are so far back 
but you're right there's not there's not necessarily a very kind of linear research trail that kind of follows a, a pathway in understanding how T position in, increases satisfaction or enjoyment or retention in the game or money spent at the, at the golf course. So there is a there is a gap there which would be interesting to to fill. And I think that certainly for people in kind of my niche of the industry where you know I do focus a lot on increasing and diversifying golf participation, then the upside that golf has experienced from the pandemic is, you know, we we literally just have to, you know, open the doors at the moment and golf golf courses are full. And so, you know, making sure that we don't lose sight of some of these strategies or initiatives that are going to underpin golf for, you know, more long-term growth. And so, you know, making sure they just don't get lost in the wash as, you know, we're falling over ourselves with, with customers because there's nothing else to do. Now, probably we're going to get a honeymoon period with this where, you know, hopefully touch with the pandemic will end soon and people will be able to have more options and, and things to do. But in the meantime, you know, golf is going to be a go-to and that will kind of bleed over for a little while, I imagine. And then we've just got to make sure that we're not in the same place that we were four or five years ago, trying to um, think about how we grow golf participation, how we make it more inclusive, because I think we had made some progress. And I think that we need to make sure that we kind of keep working on those things, despite the fact that, you know, golf is experiencing this, this boom at the moment. And, you know, I, I see your research, I mean, your, your work as being, you know, a really interesting approach for golf courses. And uh, maybe we should do a bit of research on it, Kerry. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've, been, I've actually been looking for somebody to to partner with me for many years. And uh, Dr. Nicole Lavoie, who I think originally put us in touch, she, she recognizes that need also, you know, that, that we have a need to, to do some research that is a different type of research. You know, a lot of what's been done is just surveys. And, you know, when you ask, ask women what they need on the golf course they they we well i i know because i've been trained but there are so few female golf course architects and you know you need a trained eye to know what is needed to make the game more playable and so if you ask a a, a woman what she needs on the golf course to make it more playable she doesn't know she doesn't know how to answer that question you know, and so um, surveys aren't the answer. And, and uh, you know, maybe you and I could <laughs> formulate a, a better research question and go looking for the answer to that question. You know, yeah, I'm on it. All right. Any, any talk about research gets me excited. <laughs> well, let's talk about golf, golf, and then we'll both be on the same path here. So yeah, I mean, I really love that last part of that conversation between the two of you because this uh, everything I would say everything maybe 90% of what we're hearing from the gather community over the past three months in particular you know and bearing in mind there's lots and lots of the golf industry sectors that are represented which is one of the things we love but there's obviously a lot of golf people who work at golf clubs and the biggest talking point by far is all we know this from the smart people. We know there's a boom at the moment. We know that we've got this luxury at the moment, but is golf going to learn enough from the past experiences to realize we've got to do things differently to capitalize and keep the momentum going once the rest of the world goes back to normal a little bit. Now, we were discussing this the other day and there's a bit of a sort of observation that at the moment, maybe in the UK, actually things are not quite booming like maybe thought people thought they would in the last two or three weeks. This sounds like there's a gap here that you could, in the market that people like you can definitely start to look at. Clubs need to, all these new people that are coming into the game and experiencing in the last year, how do you best find out? They're your customers now. Like, yes, you have existing customers, I get that. If you take the example of what came out last week from Golf Canada, 
they, and I don't know the detail to speak yet on the back of this in terms of you know, what it's actually going to look like on the ground, but they publicised that they were looking at a new national participation sort of branded strategy last year before the pandemic started. And then when it started to hit, they realised they need to pause and learn and then pivot. And they're now saying, well, our new, our, our new focus is how do we retain the people that have come into the game over the past 12 months? And that might sound fairly simple the way I've described it, but the way I read it was very impactful to me. It's like quite a smart, very sensible strategy. Now, are golf clubs looking at things that way or not? And my suspicion would be in many places, probably not. But people like both of you with the expertise you've got have both the, the skill to say, well, how do you ask the right questions to your new customers and learn what they really want? And then secondly, how do you meet those needs from a golf course perspective? Right, right. I think, um, you know, you're, there was an article I wrote. Well, there was a series of three articles I wrote back in maybe 2018, 2017, called um, Recruitment versus Retention. You know, and, you know, where, where do we focus our attention and, and what do we need to retain these players? That, that we've just just exactly what you were talking about. How do we retain the players? You know, otherwise the it's like a leaky bucket. You know, you recruit a bunch of women to come play golf. And if you don't do the things and provide them with the services and the product that they expect and want, it, it is like a leaky bucket. They're going to walk out the back door. So, you know, I think, you know, it, it comes down to providing them with the, the golf course, to play on that's fun and playable and accessible. You provide them with uh, equipment and clothing that is comfortable and uh, sporty, you know, athletic, athletic fabrics and, and clubs that fit them. You have to provide them with role models in the pro shop when they walk in, they, they need to see somebody that reflects them. You have to provide them with coaches and people that, that can help them. Uh, and then you go up a level into the, the governance and the leadership of clubs and put women at the table and then listen to them. Don't just have them there as tokens. You have to listen to what they say and, and then follow up on it a little bit, you know? So, so my, uh, you know, my, my position on some of these short courses and, and actually quite a few things is different than the message that is being formulated. But what I find is I feel, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like, okay, this is the message that we want to carry forward. And your dissenting opinion is, is not what we want. And so therefore, sometimes I don't think that, that my voice gets listened to. And, and I think all voices, all the voices need to be listened to. And then, you know, what shakes out, shakes out. But at least you start to see all different angles and all different opinions. So thanks yeah. for having me on. Thanks for, for asking my opinion. I appreciate it. I was just going to agree with, again, agree with Carrie and, and say that, you know, corporate America has, has realized the value of having diversity of opinions having different perspectives, having people who don't walk in your shoes, you know, have, have input. You know, I think that's what golf needs to, to do as well. And, you know, I think we're getting to the point where we're having conversations about, you know, how do we change the culture? And so then that's good, but then the next step is okay at the leadership level, at the governance level, we need to really shake that part of our industry up so that we do have diversity of, of thought. Um, just because we know that diversity of thought is, you know, better for innovation, it's better for solving problems. If you care about the bottom line, then it helps the bottom line. So, you know, whether you care about this stuff for you know, as being a bleeding heart liberal or whether you care about it because it's going to make your club or your, your, your business better, then, you know, it's a win-win. 
Yeah, I, I, just tying on to something that you said there, you know, I, I think growth of the game is it's just inherently tied to transformation of the, the golf culture to be reflective maybe of our society, our larger society. And, you know, women and robust inclusion of women is the key to the, to the future of it. Just because we have so far to, to come to get to an equitable position in the game because women still only make up about 23, 24% of, of the golfing population. So um, we have a long ways to go. And in order to get there, I think we need this, the advocates, the allies and the mentors to support the increased inclusion of women. And, you know, just putting women at the top of an organization, it's important, like, like we've done with the, the PGA of America and the USGA, you know, they've all had women leaders now, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, we've all had women leaders. It's important, but it, but if it's only tokenism and if this doesn't lead to a sustained prolonged effort, you know, where we continue these patterns of behavior, change isn't gonna occur. We'll fall back into these same old patterns and we don't grow the game. So it, 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 we need a continued effort to include women at, at all levels and, and listen to, to the diversity of opinions. Yeah, I love those closing, closing thoughts from both of you. Thank you very much. And you know, from my perspective, it's actually, you know, if you play the game of golf, you love the challenge and you love like a little bit of interest when you're playing a golf course and different things, you either love the, I guess we might hate it at times, but we love the uncertainty of knowing the lie that we're going to get next, the location we're going to be in next. And I think that that makes the the game itself and the industry absolutely ripe for being more diverse because you want more opinions and different kinds of views and perspectives on how golf courses should be set up, on how the game should be taught, on how businesses in golf should be run, on how you should market to people, on how you should create tech products, like everything that's represented within the gather community would benefit from different diverse thinking towards it. So yeah, it's been a really interesting conversation and there's no doubt that we could we could go on for a long time if we went down now looking at the leadership roles and, and everything We've, you've touched on it a few times. That's a whole other topic in itself, which is really of interest. So. You know, I'm just delighted that we've been able to have this conversation, Carrie, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do it because I think there's some very different perspectives that you've given today, which have definitely, as I say this, almost every single guest, I've learned a lot from this conversation and from the prep that I did from it. And even right thinking at the back at the beginning of this conversation, you know, the first question I asked and the sort of perception that I had, I've probably already shifted from that even through this conversation here. So that'll help me going forward. And I just hope that there's, you know, a few people that listen to this conversation as well and think, hmm, there's maybe some other considerations that I could have here going forward. Yeah, you know, uh, Colin, if I could just add one other thing about, you know, short courses, because I don't want to sound like I'm like completely opposed to them because I'm I'm not, I'm really on the fence. I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, which way we need to go with it in order for golf to be more sustainable, we do have to shorten up these courses because in environmentally, to be environmentally sustainable, we have to use less land, less water, less inputs, you know, chemical, chemicals to treat pesticides. You know, we have to, to decrease the inputs. And so short courses in a sense will help us to get to that, that point. I just, don't want short courses to be the place where women get marginalized, you know, they get pushed off to, to the short course. It, but in, in order to, to do these short courses, we need to have different formats of competition and we need to have a handicapping system that takes into account something other than nine holes and 18 holes. There, uh, our handicap system, ha system has to align with maybe a hole by hole type handicapping system. So if it doesn't matter if you play 13 holes or you play 15 holes or you play 18 holes, you can come out of that with a handicap. And then our, our competitions also have to um, be altered to, to be 
you know, maybe we played 12 hole competitions or 15 hole competitions or, you know, some other number other than, than 18, but the game itself has to change it, you know, at the same time or in alignment with a shorter course format, the game and the handicapping system. So just, I just didn't want to come off as, as saying uh, short courses are not the thing. Maybe they are the thing in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and you know, the, the conclusion that I've taken from this whole conversation, even although we've been diving right into the talk about short courses, is that, again, if you love the game and you love the industry and you want to see more people enjoying it, there's, it's really exciting. Like, there's so much potential because currently, as you say, 22% in, in my experiences in many places, you know, both industry and at club level, it's like 10% of, of members are, and participants are women. And that to me is like, there's a really exciting potential. If we can start to get that bit right, think how many more people are going to come into the game. More importantly, think how many more families are going to come into the game because that we know the research tells us that that, that influences more families participating. So I think there's a, there's a whole lot of potential from this. And if today's conversation, you know, adds, you know, 1% more fuel to the fire of that, then I'm pleased. And if it adds 1% more to the fuel for the fire for what you're doing in your work, Carrie, then I, I would be really proud of that. So, you know, I, I really appreciate the time. Is there any final words that you would want to make just really primarily to the, the listeners who, as you know, are made up of a really diverse group of people from all sorts of different sectors of the industry? Many of them are very influential and, and they're decision makers at club level right up to sort of tour level and, and senior business level. Any final words before we close off? Just start the discussion and find figure out what's what's right for your club. And you know, I'm happy to join in that discussion. You know, help formulate a vision for the club that you're at, and make sure that it that uh, a diversity of voices are heard. You're here, absolutely. Brilliant way to end. That's probably the the quote for the. For the session, Carrie, I really appreciate that. Um, it's been a pleasure learning about the the cow patties and everything else in between. I'll, 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 I'll remember that one for a while, uh, and I've enjoyed researching about your work as well. So all the best with with projects going forward. I know some exciting things that you're not quite able to mention, but you you told me about beforehand. So that's going to be some cool stuff that people can look out for. Hopefully, you can share some of that on your LinkedIn profile in the coming months. And Sue, thank you very much for taking the time to join and uh, give us your view and questions as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I really enjoyed it too and definitely gave me good food for thought and uh, just thinking about, you know, participation from a different perspective than I usually look at it, which, you know, as we've been saying, that's the, that's the whole benefit of hearing diverse voices. Uh, makes you think about things in a slightly different way. Thank you, Colin, and thank you, Sue. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thank you.